Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the TLS podcast. With the summer holidays upon us, now seems a good time to take stock and revisit some memorable moments from a year's worth of podcasts. This week, it's all about the big and small screen, because even though the pandemic brought most of Hollywood to a standstill, the films kept on coming. From an Oscar-winning film about a community of travellers who somehow hold dear to the American dream, to a fictionalised account of what happened when some of the most famous black men in America spent an evening together in a Miami motel room. But first, when the cinemas were closed, the Oscar-winning director Steve McQueen rose to the challenge and gave us Small Axe, a brilliant series of films that centred on black British life between the 1960s and 80s. Colin Grant, the author of Homecoming, Voices of the Windrush Generation, discussed their impact with us on this show. It's a very beautiful looking film, very rich film. In a way, it's kind of gloss, where it could be matte. In my, in my own preference, I would prefer it to be more matte. But he has managed to convey that the... Atmosphere of the times really, really well. Sometimes when you watch these period films, it's almost as if the actors are in fancy, in fancy dress, but these people really inhabit the costumes and the times. So they move as people moved in the times. And he conjures the, the, the times in terms of the, way, the look of the place, but also the sound. The, the sound of reggae is very sort of subtly uh, coursing through many, many of the scenes. Suddenly people are breaking out into Calypso songs Oh, they're liming, as we say in the Caribbean. They're just hanging out, but they're enjoying themselves. And, and they recognise that food is entertainment and coming together is a, is a moment to entertain themselves. So he catches that kind of excitement of people who are not going to be beaten up or beaten down by the forces arrayed against them because they all have their own sense of individuality. And you say in the piece that, that all, all the films, in fact, despite some uh, this very difficult subject matter, and there's no there's no uh, flinching before the violence and the injustice of, of what happens, but you say that all the films are shot through with joy. Yeah, and I think sometimes we lose sight of that. 
I mean, often the way that Caribbean life has been depicted in our culture is one where we are either the victims or the perpetrators. And if we're victims, we're the victims of great transgressions and are to be pitied. Or we are muggers, uh, burglars, rioters. And what McQueen does is, 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 in a way, capture people as a kind of single unit. These people actually don't stray much beyond their few streets and they hang out together and they're comfortable in each other's presence so that they can rib each other, they can laugh with each other, they can critique each other and they can argue with each other, but it's done with this great sense of joy and a joie de vivre that mm. uh, permeates all of the films, actually. And um, was the mangrove a particular target, do you think, because not just um, Caribbean, West Indian people, but because also there were there, there black intellectuals and activists and artists gathered there. Do you think that was why it was a particular target as well? Yeah, I think sometimes we lose sense of the fact that one of the bigger problems that we have in this country is not necessarily to do with race, it's to do with class. And there's a sense that the black people who hang out at this establishment, including Darkus Howard and other intellectuals, are kind of a class above the working class policemen who are rather ill-educated and uh, annoyed and feel almost patronised by the presence of these black people who are getting on in life, maybe having much more joy and much more potential to fulfil their lives than these working class policemen. And what's kind of clear is that there is this hatred that comes through, especially from this PC pulley, but I think it's informed by the, the culture at large. There was this great antipathy I felt towards Caribbean people when I was growing up in the 60s in Luton. And you sense that there's this resentment, which is not built on anything other than fear. There's this fear that actually these black people are going to usurp the, the white working class people. And that comes through in the uh, the great antipathy and the violence displayed by PC Pulley and some of his colleagues. Then if, then if we move on to the second film in the series, Lovers Rock, this is totally different, isn't it? In in the story and the style and the tone. Yeah, no, I, I love Lovers Rock. I mean, I love mm. all of the films actually. And in this particular film, which is set right at the beginning of the eighties, it's focusing on this period of music called Lovers Rock, which is kind of British, kind of a British take on reggae in a way, but it's all very slow. I mean, it reminded me of my father who, who was walked just faster than slow. <laughs> it's the kind of music that you often would hear in, I don't know, a nightclub at the end of the evening. But with this kind of music, it's played all the way through the evening. And so it's kind of slow, meditative, but very relaxed. People are smoking a lot of mar- marijuana, but they're enjoying themselves and they're singing along. And it's a sense that they are hearing themselves in the music almost for the first time. And it's very beautifully shot. People are dressed up to the nines. These are sometimes these are Christian girls who are um, absconding from church and they've gone down to the dance hall to this blues party. And you have all these men who are kind of clinging to the wall with their drinks, nursing their drinks, maybe smoking a spliff, waiting for an opportunity to choose someone to dance with. And the film is shot in this very slow, reflective way, lingering way, loving way, and a joyous way. So the music captures the sense of their abandon almost. And I found it very, very affecting. It was almost as if you were immersed in the film yourself. It it did feel, it, it, it 
as you say, the slowness of the music really does permeate the the film itself. So there's a slow, kind of tantalizingly slow quality to the film itself. It develops a bit like a short story, I think. I know I know it was co-written by the British Jamaican writer Courtney Newland, and it does feel, um, for want of a better word, it does feel very writerly. Yes, it does, although there's not a lot of language because some of the times the um, songs play out in full. You know, you have that song, mm. Silly Games, it's played in its three and a half minutes and then they rewind and, and start playing it again. Um, but actually, it is a very literary film in that the language, I think, is when it's used, although it's spare, it's just so. It just captures the, the, the language and the, and the kind of street speak of the time. I think Courtney Newland's done a very, very good job in that regard. But also it captures some of the awkwardness of being a young adult, um, awkwardness around the language of love, around the language of flirtation. And there is a kind of sinister element to it as well, with at least one or two of the characters who uh, are more interested in in sex than they are interested in courting someone. Um, And there's there's a kind of edge to it, which I really liked as well, because in the course of the film, although it's slow, it does build towards the kind of crescendo in terms of the music where mm. it becomes almost like a kind of punk music at the end where young men essentially are left on the dance floor thrashing around, throwing themselves at each other in this kind of wild abandon that you might find at the end of an evening when people are fearing that this is their last chance to express themselves. Oh, I wanted to ask about the broader context of these films. Um, I was reading a recent interview with Steve McQueen by the historian David Olusoga. Um, and Olusoga says, small acts raises, uh, raises difficult questions, not just about the history of British racism. It also stands as an indictment of the UK film and television industry and its failure to value black stories and harness black talent. Um, and he goes on and he says, after this, and by this, I think he, he means 2020 more widely, uh, the kind of the shift in political, social consciousness that we've seen in many societies I think this year in the wake of George Floyd and so on he says there are no viable excuses now for marginalizing black stories and black voices did you watching these films Colin did you did these films elicit the same kind of at last uh reaction in you when you were watching them or did did you see them in the same way as a turning point or are you more no no I didn't I understand what Olusuga is saying because and in the past, there have been films, um, but sometimes they haven't been scripted by people who know much about the culture that they're putting on the screen. But, you know, there have been great films in the past. I mean, during the great period of Play for Today on BBC television, there was a, a number of films by Horace Ove, a great Trinidadian-born filmmaker, who uh, made a film actually about a Black Panther incident went, that went wrong with the, um, the siege of Spaghetti House. Um, and there the have been great comedies um, like the Desmonds in the past. But I think what Olusuga is, is probably referring to is that we hope now that there'll be more opportunities for films like the Queen's films to come through. Because although there have been films and documentaries and series in the past, often you might find that there'll be a kind of moment when black filmmakers, black films seem to be in vogue, and then there'll be a dearth of 10 years before they get another crack at the whip, as it were. And this time I hope, and maybe Olusuka hopes, that there's going to be now a great rolling interest of Caribbean life in this country, which will encourage filmmakers and producers and commissioners, no matter what colour they are, 
to recognize that there's a great opportunity now to show how the culture has evolved and developed and to show how it has been enriched by people like Steve McQueen, but also by Horace Ove and others in the past. Finally, Colin, I'm afraid um, this will have to be the last question, though, of course, we could and would like to carry on talking about this. I just wanted uh, to know how you see small acts. Do you see it as an integral part of McQueen's, frankly, fairly amazing body of work? Or do you see this as a departure? How would you situate it within his work? Well, in a way, I interviewed Steve McQueen for his show at Tate Modern a few months ago before lockdown happened. And I was struck there myself by how strong the work is, especially as it pertains to reflecting black life. And I know that he doesn't want to be called a black director or black artist, but there's something about his understanding of Caribbean life in this culture that comes through and fits with his view, his eye and his abilities to translate what he's seen onto the screen really, really well. So I think he's found the perfect subject and found a way of giving voice and giving sight to that perfect subject in the most compelling, compassionate and thrilling way. So I think it's a high mark, personally, of Steve McQueen's career thus far. Although he's articulating some very harsh moments in our culture, he's saying by the end that all of we are part of this culture. As you say in Jamaica, all of we the writer Colin Grant there discussing Steve McQueen's Small Axe series. As the cinemas began to open, we were rewarded with Nomadland, a film directed by Chloe Zhao, which blends fact and fiction to depict US citizens who take to the road when, after the Great Recession, they realise they cannot afford to grow old in their own homes. Frances McDormand would go on to win an Oscar for her portrayal of Fern, a widow and former substitute teacher from Empire Nevada, who has lost everything. Here again is Colin Grant to reveal what of this film is fact. The fact is that there was a book written in 2017 by an intrepid investigative journalist called Jessica Bruder, who traveled with these nomads, these new nomads who travel around the USA looking for work. And they're mostly elderly or middle-aged people now, often single people. And she lived and was inspired by them and wrote a book, a kind of oral history type book of their experiences, which she called no man land. These people are on the way to somewhere and on the way to nowhere. And that book was also read by Chloe Zhao a few years ago, and she was very much inspired by the story to try to bring it to the screen. So this new film is also called Nomadland, and it includes many of the people whom Jessica Bruder interviewed for her book, and they are playing versions of themselves. The main character in Jessica Bruder's book is called Linda May, and she also appears in the film. But in a way, her role is really played by Frances McDermott, whose character is called Fern. She's kind of version of Linda May, this 60-year-old single nomad. Um, and it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because if you didn't know that if you just went to the film cold uh, and hadn't heard any context around it 
you wouldn't know that at all, would you? You wouldn't know. I was trying to work out when you would know. I think you might know at the end. Yes, only at the end. I mean, I didn't know, in all honesty, Lucy, uh, as I was watching it, I thought, my God, these are fantastic actors who are able to act in a very natural fashion. And that this director has must, must have sat with them very patiently in order to draw out these very lifelike portrayals. Um, and equally, uh, you equally begin to think this might even be a documentary as you're watching it because it so, seems to be so natural and so absorbed in the actual place and time. And there seems to be no artifice. There's, there's no sense of them putting on any sense of, of fiction that even when the character played by Frances McDormand comes on the screen, you for a moment think that she is really a nomad. She is really a wanderer because she seems to be no different from anybody else on the screen. And it has a sort of straight, it is a strange hybrid of fiction and non-fiction, but it works. It does really work really, really well. Do you think it weakens the real life stories or enhances them? Why, why, I'm just interested in why you would put the fictional story in there, do you see? Yes, I do see. I think for people who are not familiar with this world, and I think many of the people who watch the film will be unfamiliar with it, having the fictional character of Frances McDormand act as their navigator lets you into the world, lets you almost position yourself in that world in a way that you might not do if it was a straight documentary. And you say Frances McDormand's, her, her performance in Among Them, it's particularly strong. It's, I mean, it's it, as you say, it's just, the music doesn't come in until about 20 minutes in. And up until then, you could just be watching, as you say, you could be watching a documentary, couldn't you? Because she's, she's amazing. She's amazing. And what I loved about her was that um, she's obviously, obviously a very humble and in, intuitive and intelligent actor and she doesn't draw your attention your attention draws to her because she is so compelling but she moves uh, around them as if she's one of them and when I was watching it at first it was almost as if the extras had taken over the film it's almost as if you're watching a film about the extras and she was she was the um, the also ran because she was the outsider to their story and there's something about the the very sort of pared down very simple scenery and setting and very simple and straightforward narrative that allows you in as well because these are are all vulnerable people making the best of their very difficult situations and and what you get I think is a sense of the fern character played by Frances McDermott you get a sense of her isolation even in the midst of this very populated caravan of people whom she joins but they're all very damaged as well and what was tender and loving about it was that that's not the focus of the film. There are moments when this caravan of nomads travelling around America, they might set up at a campsite and there'll be a campfire and they'll be sitting around telling their stories, almost like their war stories. But they're not told with rancor, they're not told with pity, they're just told as is, just in a kind of matter-of-fact way. Their stories about separation, their stories about repossession of their homes, their stories about cancer or, or terminal illness. But there's a sense that they are a kind of community of people who have time and place for each other. They're very kind of collegiate and considerate towards each other. And so it seems to be a very tender film. And in, in the review, I write about it as being almost a utopia. These are people who've, who've stepped away from the mainstream of American life and found a new, richer way of living, even though it's one that's full of privations. 
and one where there are, are greater uncertainties. And you say that they're in a tradition of economic migrants in the US, aren't they? In a way, this is this is a long historical tradition. The film has a historical slant. Yes, exactly. What very clearly comes to mind uh, is uh, John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, uh, which is written in the late 1930s and made into a, a film with the same title by uh, John Ford, actually. And I remember watching that film as a child and, and feeling very moved by it and, and very um, protective towards the characters on the screen. And they are uh, from Oklahoma, the, and they are a kind of despised band of people who um, are, through no fault of their own, through the Great Depression, uh, are finding a way through society to find a place which they can live in. And it did, that period did lead to a great birth of the trailer culture, people building trailer homes that they could attach to their wagons or to their houses or their vans and, and drag them from pillar to post from one part of America to the other. But what happened, I think, was that um, there were state interventions in the late 30s and 40s with uh, a great desire to build social housing. So that nomadic life came to an end. And I think what's different, uh, what's different now is that there doesn't seem to be any end in sight for these modern nomads. And they seem to be quite content with that. There's no sense in the film that these people are in any rush to go back to the normalcy of the life that they've left behind. And that's, that's quite a, a tricky thing to come to as a viewer. You, you want there to be some resolution, but this film is without resolution and all the more powerful for it, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's all sorts of strands to it, like we are saying, there's the fictional and fact and the historical and the socioeconomic and the emotional one. There's also, as you mentioned, there's a filmic tradition, isn't there? Because there's, you you were seeing allusions and echoes also of some of the great Westerns, is that right? Yes, I was struck by that because they're out there on on the plains, uh, on these sometimes lunar landscapes with these great skies, these wonderful uh, dusks that set, and the, the light is very glamorous in a way. It's very enchanting and very appealing. And in some of these bleak landscapes, you are reminded of the uh, westerns of people like John Ford. And there's a sense I felt Fern is like the John Wayne character in the film The Searchers, who seems to have some mission in life and has some purpose in life, but actually is lost. And when we watch the end of the searches. We, we see the John Wayne character looking out through the doorway into a very bleak future. And there's a there's a balance of of kind of loneliness and landscape, isn't it? It's very beautiful, some of it. Yeah, I thought it's very tender, and I thought I thought that what was interesting for me was that Chloe Zhao has been in the United States for about twenty years, I believe. She was uh, from China originally, and there's something about I think the ability of of outsiders to not worry too much about uh, portraying America in a nostalgic way. That, that, I mean, this film, in a way, is quite nostalgic for this sort of lost era, for the sense of being a, a pioneer, but for all the sense of self-sufficiency. And with her outsider eye, I think Chloe Zhao has, has seen something very clear about, about the sense of the American identity, which sometimes gets, gets lost in the... In the the great number of American Hollywood films that uh, are being churned out mm. on a weekly and daily basis, it seems. And we all know what happened next. 
Frances McDormand went on to win her third Oscar and the film came away with two more awards, including Best Film, so well done, Colin. Still to come, civil rights and Koreans chasing the American dream as we discuss another Oscar contender, Minari, as well as One Night in Miami. And if you like what you've heard so far, please do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode. It's a very difficult novel to discuss without spoilers because more and more of the world is revealed as it um, progresses. It's narrated by a robot who begins, called Clara, who uh, begins the story unsold in a shop and understands basically nothing about the world she lives in. But I'm already putting the listener in a different position when they come to the novel than I was in when I read it. difficult to do it well it's easy yeah. to be mean about something not well and yeah. actually that's one of the disappointing things about this piece that suddenly got so much airtime and you know there's even a question of whether we should be discussing it now because it's probably got enough mileage but I think it's, it is important to discuss it because of the things it failed to do and this is it's a, it was a review by Barry Pierce in the Irish Times of Dolly Washington Ghosts and without wishing to launch a hatchet job on a hatchet job it was rubbish <laughs> I quite like Ansible. The term was coined by Ursula Le Guin to describe a fictional device, um, which is used in quite a few of her texts, that sends and receives messages over any distance instantaneously, which kind of allows for communicational time travel without needing warp speed, which is also in the dictionary. And that's gone on to be used by a lot of other science fiction authors as a specific object. So it's not even just a word, it's a specific device um, that hasn't been invented, but is very prevalent now in science fiction. It's probably being invented somewhere yeah, at this very so. moment. And we are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the hyphen tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Later on, we'll be asking the question, what happens when Cassius Clay, Jim Brown, Sam Cooke and Malcolm X spend one night together in Miami? But first, we'll look at a Korean family in pursuit of the American dream. In Minari, we follow the Yi family as they move to Arkansas in the hope of a new life, but quickly face unforeseen challenges. The novelist Eugene Grace Wirtz discussed its impact on her and other Korean-American families who saw it. But she starts by trying to describe the film's genre. Well, I've heard it described a number of different ways. Um, I happen to see the Arkansas Times describe it as the most authentic coming of age story that they had ever seen uh, filmed on their land. And as an aside, actually, it was filmed in Oklahoma, so we won't tell Arkansas Times that. <laughs> okay, yeah, don't point that um, out to them. So if you're if you're looking at it from the the child's point of view, um, David, who is played by Alan Kim, certainly it would be a coming of age story. Um, if you were looking at it from an immigrant's point of view, from an adult immigrant's point of view, it would be um, a twist on an immigrant story. Um, if you were looking at it from a marital point of view, it could easily be a marital strive story. So it has so many different layers, which I think is part of the richness of this movie. It did seem like that to me that that, that you you could also you could say it was a a, a family drama, or you could say it was pas- a pastoral film. You know, it was about the city and the country as well, couldn't you? Absolutely, and there were moments that. You know, you could almost um, miss them because you can see that Jacob had some sort of complex, I would say, about him being like a rural person versus his wife, who was a city person. And she clearly wanted to remain a city person. And he really seemed to feel um, inferior to her in some ways that he was not able to um, provide the urban life that she wanted. Um, another way that you could see this story is an intergenerational story, because, of course, the grandmother comes on the scene and, you know, that that adds such a beautiful and necessary level of humor and levity and in some moments grief. So I think you're right. There are so many different ways that you can look at this story. So it opens with the family arriving at their new home. And one of the first things we see is that Monica, um, the wife, is pretty shocked by what she sees, isn't she? It's all a surprise to her. So she's very negative about it. And she has that stance almost the whole way through the film. But she she does have some very good reasons for having that stance, doesn't she? She does. And there's such a wonderful moment when they pull up to the house. And she um, Monica is played by um, Yeri Han, who is a very slight person and she has to kind of hoist herself into her new home because there are no stairs and the door probably starts around her belly button if not higher and so um, it's very much a uncomfortable physically uncomfortable home for her but on top of that um, because it's 50 acres in the middle of Arkansas it's an hour away from the nearest hospital, which she's very concerned about because she has a medically fragile son. Um, David has a heart condition and she's telling him constantly throughout the film in a very heartbreaking way, 
David, don't run. You know, and you see these wide open spaces um, with nothing blocking his path. And you see this uh, visibly healthy, you know, to the, to the eye looking young boy. And she's always saying, David, don't run. And you think, what is going on in the beginning of the first time she says that? Um, and as a parent to, to watch that, that just, it hits very close to home to think, you know, not only is she in a state that she doesn't know a single soul in, she's in a country where she's far away from everything that she understands. And then on top of that, she doesn't have basic access to safety for her child. She's sort of pushed into that stance throughout, isn't she? Yeah, so she's very defensive from the very start. But she's, um, so they, they do they do a kind of deal, as you say, Monica and Jacob. And, and so then, as you say, Monica's mother arrives to live with them. And it becomes clear that they're, they're each other's only family um, and to help look after the kids, which, as you say, brings more conflict and uh, and a lot of humour right into the home because David doesn't get on with her. Um, can you tell us about the grandma and also about the actor who plays her, please? Yeah, and I was so thrilled to see this actor. Her name is uh, Yoon Yajung. And I'm going to, uh, the way that I say her name is Yoon Yajung. Yoon is her uh, surname. And so um, she's one of the few Korean actors, um, as opposed to Korean American actors in the film. And um, even to me, who has not lived in Korea since I was six years old, she is like, um, an institution of her own right, you know, and um, I would say, you know, I could compare her to someone like Maggie Smith that, you know, the voice is instantly familiar to every um, Western viewer, but apparently she very, very, very much dislikes being um, described as a Western version of somebody very famous, (laughs) or I'm sorry, the Eastern version of somebody very famous, which I very much take to heart. And this is exactly something that I think the director and the writer, Isaac Lee Chung, I think he would agree with as well is that, you know, this movie is is insisting to stand on its own two feet. And so um, to return Yoon Yajung, she is the grandmother. She um, she comes on the scene and she is not the grandmother that David was hoping for. She does not bake cookies. She wears men's underwear. She loves to watch wrestling. <laughs> she, <laughs> she does. She swears quite a lot, doesn't she? She swears. <laughs> you refer to um, the, the actor's tra- trademark saltiness, which I thought was a, a lovely expression. <laughs> And so he picks that up from her. And I think it's so endearing because one of the funniest scenes in the movie, he's um, taught his little um, American buddy, Johnny, how to play this very iconic Korean game, card game. And he's just swearing up a blue streak in Korean. And Johnny, the the American kid, he's uh, the white American kid, I should say, because also David is American. He's born in uh, California. Um, he's incredibly impressed. And he's like, well, this is the best game ever. <laughs> and there's, yes, and there's a lot of conflict between David and the grandma. He kind of kicks against her. He says, she smells like Korea. She doesn't, you know, he wants, he wants her to make cookies. And what would and... Korea even smell like to him, I wonder, <laughs> because he's never even been there. So it's... <laughs> but they come to their own understanding, don't they? Very haltingly so. And I think very authentically, because there are no saccharine moments in this movie between them um, or really anybody else and and they kind of grope at an understanding you know there's I'm not going to give away um, you know that moment in the movie where he pulls an incredibly vicious crank uh, prank on his grandmother Mm. um, and it has consequences and he's being disciplined and you know that to me all played out in a way that felt so familiar because you know um, Jacob David's father is 
incredibly furious at his son for what he has done. Um, and the grandmother wants not to intrude, but she also does not want David to be punished or overly severely punished. And so she's standing up for him at the end. And, you know, there's one of these lines that she tells or says throughout the movie, you know, no, it was fine. It's so funny, <laughs> you know? And she says, you know, about the house, oh, it's on wheels. It's so funny. And she's providing this family this much needed perspective shift, you know? Oh, this is not a tragedy. It's funny. You know, can't you guys see it? It's funny. And yes. To the family, it is not funny. They they have, you know, lost their sense of humor um, a long time ago because they have spent ten years looking at chicken butts in you know, probably <laughs> yes. an airless factory in California, and yeah. have been told, you know, you should be incredibly grateful that you get to look at chicken butts for ten hours a day for ten years in a row. And so I would think that that would grind the humor out of anyone, really. <laughs> We were talking about it a bit earlier when there, there are a couple of difficult moments um, with the, the kids at church. But you say that you say in your piece, these are they are very quickly smoothed over. They don't really encounter. Well, they do encounter some hostility, but you are braced for it, aren't you? How did you feel about that portrayal? Because I know in, in the piece you, you mentioned it in the context of the 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 shootings in Atlanta in March and the, you know, the the appalling circumstances of that and the reaction by the police and that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, I haven't heard the media actually probe the director on these questions as much as I would love to. And if I had a chance, I would love to speak with him about, you know, he very intentionally um, detonated these moments and then diffused them very quickly. You know, clearly these were choices that he made where the racism was there, the microaggressions were there. For instance, you know, a Johnny who becomes a friend of David says to him, well, why is your face so flat? Which is a hurtful thing to hear and we hear it all the time. And so um, I do struggle with that, especially in this given moment where, you know, the microaggressions have become not micro, they have become um, incredibly violent to the point where we have had to have, you know, hashtag stop Asian hate and protect our elders because in in, in cities and um, towns all over this country, Asian people have been targeted purely because of the way that we appear. And um, you could be Asian in America and you could have four generations removed and have never been to Asia, but, you know, to the, to, to the white American on the street or the black American or whomever, you know, you are inescapably Asian. And and so we've become targets. And so um, in some ways I thought, oh, are those, were those moments missed opportunities in the film? But I respect the fact that he put a, a very authorial and, and personal take on those moments where um, this was not a movie about racism. And I think that he was pretty explicit about that. And I think Stephen Young, the actor who plays um, Jacob, he, he was also pretty um, overt about that, that this is not an identity movie. And I respect that as well, because, you know, at some point, when do we get to make a movie about a Korean American family that is not an identity movie? You know, that burden is always on, you know, writers of color or artists of color. And at some point, we hope that we're not always telling the same identity story and that we're not asked to tell that story over and over again. So I do, um, I do appreciate that very fine line that he's walking.
Grace Wirtz talking about the film Minari. Finally, imagine in the 1960s a room in a motel in Miami in which the most important figures in the American civil rights movement are gathered. Regina King's film, adapted from a play by Kemp Powers, tells the mostly true story of this unlikely event. The author and critic Clifford Thompson spoke to us about the film and what it meant to grow up in the shadow of these giants. Cassius Clay, as he was then known, was 22 years old. He was this very young man, but he represented so much in terms of the kind of progression of thought in the 1960s. You know, he was here was a young black man who just would not defer to anyone, who, who would not play any sort of game that white people in power wanted him to play. He was going to do things on his own terms. Um, and that is, you know, part of what had made him such an exciting figure, in, in addition to his like peerless boxing skills. And so, you know, his friendship with Malcolm X uh, was very important in his life. And when he won the title, his name was Cassius Clay, and he soon changed it to Muhammad Ali and declared his allegiance to uh, to the Nation of Islam. So it, it was a it was a pivotal time for and uh, in, in Ali's career, certainly. Um, and from your knowledge of the men involved, which I know is considerable, how how accurate do you think these portraits are? I don't mean the performances; we'll get onto them, but the but the portraits as they're as they're written. Right. I it seems to me that the the portraits as they're written are are very accurate in terms of the the sensibilities of the characters involved. Right. I guess I'll start with Ali, who was a, a fascinating, as I say in the review, a, a fascinating mix of things. I mean, he. Here was this this young man who uh, believed fervently in just in in standing up for himself and 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 just being treated like a man, and that part of him was was very fierce. Of course, he was very fierce in the ring. Um, he was also such a charismatic figure because he just he liked to to clown so much, and you know he he would make up these rhymes and and he would uh, make predictions about about the fights he was going to have. A lot of people did not like the fact that he that he bragged so much, and yet it always seemed to me, even when I was a, a child watching him uh, on on TV, it always seemed to me that that the bragging. I mean, while he certainly had a a, a healthy ego and a healthy uh, uh, understanding of of, uh, of his own talent. I could not take a lot of it seriously. It just seemed to me like he was having fun, you know, himself, and and he wanted other people to kind of enjoy his presence, and and so it really was a performance, you know. Yeah, they always seemed like part of the performance, didn't it? Right. And I know I'm just I'm going to break my own rule now because I am going to talk about the performance. <laughs> it's Eli Gorey, is that right? Who's yes. playing Muhammad? Mm-hmm. He's so he's just so charming because he says these things, and I was thinking, well, if a lot of other you know if other people said them, you'd be like, really? Right. And he's so charming exactly. that you find yourself just grinning and kind of going along with it. And he gets away with it. So when he tells people how pretty he is and jumps up and down and, and everyone just laps it up because he's so infectious. Yes, yes, yes. And 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 you get the feeling, or at least I did, that that he didn't really take it all that seriously, you know. I, um, mm. So it was it was it was an interesting mix of things. I mean, th- there's a wonderful scene in the film uh, when He's with uh, Malcolm X and Sam Cooke and Jim Brown, and he's kind of just uh, jumping around and, and, and being very boyish and, and having fun. And then he gets a serious look on his face and he's looking in the mirror and, and the other three come over and they say, uh, yeah, Cassius, what's wrong? And he says something like, I just can't believe I'm so pretty. It's <laughs> brilliant. It's brilliant. And they're, they're completely taking yeah. in. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah. So I, so I think, um, 
you know, that, that is very much true to Ali. And, and, you know, what's also true is that he was a young man who was very much on the fence in terms of what he wanted to do. And, uh, you know, when it came to uh, being religious, I mean, he, he was on the one hand, he believed in the teachings of the nation of Islam. Um, and on the other, he was 22 year old guy who, you know, liked women, like, like drinking, like, you know, just liked things that young men like. And so, um, there was a certain reluctance there, so that I, that I find interesting, and that I think is is very true to um, to the real life Ali. Well, there's some secret drinking that goes on in the film. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> it's it's, it's funny because yes. they're very sheepish in front of Malcolm X. Yes, it's like yes. he's he's the dad, and they're they're like, "Have you smelled his breath?" And they're, yes, you know. that's a, that's a really good way to put it. Actually, he 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 is like the dad. Um, and speaking of you know just the accuracy of of the portrayals, um, I as far as I can tell. Uh, the one involving Malcolm X is is uh, is on target too. Um, you know, I was I was not quite a year old when Malcolm X was assassinated, and so I you know I I never met the man, but I, I have talked to people who did know him, and one of them especially talked about how almost bashful Malcolm X was in person if you're just talking to him one on one, which of course is in contrast to how we think of M Malcolm X just being so so fiery. And the performance by Kingsley Benadir as Malcolm X in the film, I, I think captures a lot of that. He's he's very um, courtly is is the is I think the, the word the adjective I use in, in the review. Um, he, mm. he's just so uh, measured in the way he speaks. Um, and I think that comes from just a kind of a, a sense of calm and a sense of purpose that that kind of anchors him in the in the in the midst of everything that is happening at the time, including you know threats against his life. You also say in your piece that there are two layers of emotion um, when you're watching it, and the first is is from witnessing the situation and their back and forth and their struggle, and the second sort of comes from knowing what happened um, to all these very talented men afterwards. Yeah, that that's right. I you know it's it's wrenching sometimes because. Um, the four characters at bottom all want the same thing. You know, they, they all want their own freedom and they want freedom for their people. And those desires lead them uh, to different approaches. And, and, and that's the source of their, of their clashes. And so it's, it's kind of almost wrenching to see characters who are so passionate and in so many ways want the same thing to, to disagree sharply on how to, how to get that thing. It's funny watching, the end of uh, of one night in Miami. I was I was reminded of the end of uh, a play called uh, Abe Lincoln in Illinois by Robert E. Sherwood, which ends with Lincoln having won the uh, 1860 presidential election and, and heading off to Washington. And you know that people are in tears at the end of that story because they know what's coming. You know they uh, they they know it's uh, what's coming is civil war and and Lincoln's assassination. And it's, it's so emotional for that reason. And the same thing is true here. So the action is set on February 25th, 1964. Late that same year, Sam Cooke was shot to death uh, in an incident in a, in a motel by the, the manager of the hotel in an incident that, that involved um, a woman who turned out to be a prostitute. And the, the case is murky to this day. Um, almost exactly a year after uh, the events in one night in Miami, Malcolm X, of course, would be would be assassinated. Muhammad Ali lived till until 2016, but for decades before that, the punishment that he absorbed in the ring it took its toll on him. And um, you know, he he had Parkinson's disease, and this young man who had just been this irrepressible figure, just always clowning and joking and talking fast, 
just be later became this this kind of slow moving uh, person who it, it was hard to associate with his his younger self. Only Jim Brown remains alive. Uh, you know, he had a, a great football career, of course. He was in a lot of action films, including probably most famously The Dirty Dozen. And what a lot of people don't know about Jim Brown, actually, is that he did a lot of work with uh, gangs, uh, people who are caught up in gangs, trying to get them out of the life and, and, and kind of improve their circumstances. So, But, you know, the other three, it's very sad to see them so full of life in the film, knowing what's, what's coming down the road. I grew up listening to my older brother's uh, uh, Sam Cooke albums, and even then, he just seemed so so sunny, and and uh, his voice was so was so happy, even when he was singing about ostensibly sad things. and uh, And he was so handsome, you know, and 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 so he had that persona of just just being this this really cheerful presence with this with these movie star good looks and. What that belied was a real shrewdness when it came to uh, business matters. You know, he was not content to to just uh, get paid for singing on a record. He wanted to own the rights to things so that, um, you know, there's a, there's a great scene in One Night in Miami when um, he, he's talking about... Um, it's uh, Bobby Womack. Bobby Womack, written, yes, yes. Uh, all, is it All Over Now? Yes, right? yes. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. right, yeah. Um, and, you know, he recorded that song and then the, the Rolling Stones did it and eclipsed his version. But because he had written the song and he had the rights to the song, every time the, the Stones performed it, he got a chunk of change. And uh, Sam Cooke is, is trying to impress upon uh, Malcolm X and the others that, look, this is, you know, this is business. You know, if we want to if we want to get anywhere, this is what we have to do. Yeah. And also this is, as Jim Brown later says, that the economic power, you could say that that, that that's power. Right. And luckily he um, in the film. We do have quite a bit of him singing, mm. quite a lot mm-hmm. of pressure to play Sam Cooke, but he just sings really beautifully. Yes, yes. So yes, there's indeed. no problem, yeah. you know, there's no anxiety there, <laughs> is there? And I was thinking about it because, because um, I mean, this is already in the film. Malcolm X is saying, why aren't you, you know, why are you writing? He's essentially saying, why are you writing kind of silly love songs? Right. You send me sentimental reasons, that kind of thing. Yeah. But there's an earlier, uh, he's referring to a concert that he sees him do earlier where he he had already written Chain Gang. He he wasn't mm. um, he wasn't completely kind of cut off, was he, from what was going on? No, that's true. That's true. I mean, you know, and I and I think uh, I can't remember a time when I didn't know that song, but I did not know when I was listening to it as a kid that that, you know, I did not think about the circumstances that that inspired it. Um, and of course, a lot of these uh, a lot of these prisoners in the South were, were black. And, you know, there, there was um, there was a thing in the South called convict leasing, where um, prisons and would lease convicts to to companies to do work for for no pay, obviously. And just backbreaking work that sometimes uh, that sometimes sent them to an early grave, you know. So this was going on, and and Sam Cooke's song I think alludes to that, and but but not in a not in an obvious way at all. And it's a very male story, isn't it? That it is directed by a woman, but it's it's really this is really all about the blokes. This one, there's no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you see a little, you know, uh, uh, you see a, a little <laughs> bit of the wives, but. Um, this is um, Regina King's debut. We know that she's a wonderful actor, um, but this is her first film. So does it show that this is her first film? Can you see uh, strengths or weaknesses in her as a director? For me, it's, 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 hard, to, it's hard to come up with too many. I mean, I, I, I think it's a, a, a really uh, 
fine debut. You know, I, I, I think there were some really interesting choices that are, that are very, uh, very successful. You know, one I mentioned in the review is the fact that um, the interior scenes, you know, so much of it takes place in, um, in a hotel room and the way it's filmed and the way the, the set is designed and everything, it, it just kind of reinforces that, that intimacy. There, there are no garish colors in, in the room. There, there's, there are like browns and dark reds and, and uh, reinforces the sort of intimacy among, among the four men. You, you feel like you're kind of sitting in on a, on a family gathering in a way. for listening to this edition of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell looking back at the past year on this show we'll be back in September with a return to regular programming but in the meantime issues of the TLS continue to appear every week so why not look into a print and digital subscription you'll find a special subscription offer just for podcast listeners in this episode's description but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye and see you in September Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.